This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Connor, and welcome to this week's episode of Intelligence Squared. Today, we're featuring another episode from our new podcast strand called Intelligence Squared Business, and it features Sarah Fryer, author of the award-winning book, No Filter, The Inside Story of Instagram. And if you've ever wondered why Instagram has pivoted towards shopping or wondered how Mark Zuckerberg acquired the company into the Facebook empire, this is a fascinating exploration of the beginning, the now and the future of one of the most influential companies in the world. It was hosted by the economist and broadcaster Linda Yu. And if you do enjoy it, please do subscribe to Intelligence Square Business through the link in the podcast description. But now, let's go to the episode. Instagram is becoming more and more like Facebook every day. Instead of Instagram being a place where you get introduced to things you haven't already seen, it's a more Facebookian mentality of introducing you to more of the stuff they know that you like. It is the place where we measure relevance. Hello, I'm Linda Yu, an economist and broadcaster. Welcome to this Intelligence Squared podcast. I'm delighted to be joined by Sarah Fryer, a journalist at Bloomberg News, to discuss her new book, No Filter, the inside story of how Instagram transformed business, celebrity, and our culture. Even if you're not on Instagram, you've probably noticed this ubiquitous icon that looks like a square camera listed on many organizations' social media. Instagram is a photo posting app launched just a decade ago that has over a billion users. It was acquired by Facebook for a billion dollars in 2012. Its founders left the company in 2018. It's quite a story that Sarah Fryer tells in this book. So welcome, Sarah. I'm just going to start by asking you to describe how you researched the book, including tell us about those non-disclosure agreements that you and your interviewees had to sign to do it. So the culture of technology is 
it's, it's very tight knit and there's a big skepticism of things that come from the media scoop that are seen as leaks, leaks are seen as betrayal. And so the way I did the book, I, I talked to hundreds of current and former employees, some with the permission of the company, some incredibly terrified to talk. And the reason they were terrified is Everyone who comes into Facebook or any of the companies Facebook owns, including Instagram, WhatsApp, Oculus, has to sign a non-disclosure agreement that says they won't, they won't say anything about their experience to anyone, including the press. And a lot of people were, were very concerned about breaking that. So I did have a lot of on background or off, off the record interviews to try to get situated in the story. And then just sort of built off that with a, a bunch of uh, triangulation. So like some people will tell you one thing and then other people will say, oh, well, uh, that's not how I remember it. And then you just go back to the first person. It's just a, a process of, it's like a puzzle. Like you have to put the pieces together. And the reason there was such a puzzle about Instagram is there was this legend. I think that that in technology, there's just like the story that is told. And then there's the reality. And the story that was told about Instagram was that it was this, this incredibly um, successful acquisition by Facebook operating independently within Facebook. So it was a separate app, essentially a separate company. Kevin Systrom, the CEO of Instagram would describe himself as like, you know, reporting to Mark Zuckerberg as a board member, like he still sort of thought of himself as a CEO. And the reality was much more complicated, a story full of ego and culture clash and culture creation and product decisions that are shaping our everyday behavior. And and a lot of things that I, I tried to unmask about how those decisions, that drama inside Facebook and Instagram, then goes on to affect you and I, the things we do in the world. I'm going to delve into that with you in just a moment. (laughs) So let's start um, actually with just how Instagram started. So firstly, the name of the app, Instagram, is a combination of instant and telegram. So um, how did it start? It It was one of the first apps to fully take advantage of the fact that in 2010, we had these these phones that were also cameras in our pockets, almost for the, like for the first time, Apple really made it accessible with the iPhone four. And, and there wasn't really an app that was perfect for it. There were a lot of people who were trying Kevin Systrom and Mike Krieger were unique among tech founders in that they, they were more creative people. They had a, a sense of, of taste of Mike Krieger was very much into music and art and, literature. Kevin was very much into um, fine whiskey and photography, of course, and just all sorts of all sorts of deep interests. He liked to DJ. And so the way that they built this app was very different than what you see in technology at large, where people are just trying to solve the most difficult problems to say that they did it. Instagram was not a hard problem. In fact, the the genius of Instagram is that the app was so simple, so stripped down that with that constraint, you get creativity. All you were able to do on Instagram was post a square photo with a filter on it. That's it. It made it so easy for people to turn their everyday moments into memories. And the other thing the founders understood, uh, remember I, I mentioned their their cultural awareness, 
they understood that this had to be cool. Like, like you weren't going to just get people to use this app by blasting an email list. Um, you had to cultivate the right kind of people. They reached out to artists, musicians, um, people who were in the scene in urban areas uh, that they knew. Um, Jack Dorsey was Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter, was an early user and investor of Instagram posted about it frequently on Twitter. And I think that, that that taught people when they went to the app what it was for. And it was for making everyday life images into art. So I think you've um, captured it pretty well there because what's fascinating is how they ended up amassing such a following over a billion people. And it was the first ever, I think, mobile app to achieve a billion dollar valuation that you write about in the book. And they, similar apps just didn't do as well, did they? No, I think that that less is more when it comes to a new app. And there were a lot of apps that had many more filters or many more features or lots of different things to do. And, and in fact, the first app that Kevin Systrom tried was called Bourbon. And it had not only photo sharing, but uh, check-ins and event planning and all sorts of things that were really complicated. Like if you wanted to post a photo, you had to actually email it in and then it would get posted. It was very primitive in terms of mobile apps, but they quickly stripped it down to just the one thing they wanted to do well. And that was a philosophy that they really carried through Instagram uh, for years and years. You got to, you got to, you have a job to do for your users and then you do it and you do it well. Um, I don't think that they understood the what the cultural impact of their decisions would be though, because there are a few early decisions that have dramatically shaped the way that we live today. Um, one is the filters. The filters were originally intended to make it nicer for us to have our phone photos posted because phones were taking really grainy, light leaky photos. And these filters with Kevin's Kevin Systrom's photography background would make them immediately look like nostalgic Polaroids, which was very appealing to people to like present their lives as more lovely than they actually were. What that taught us though, now that we don't need filters anymore, we are still pretending on Instagram. We're still using Instagram to curate this personal image. The other thing is sharing. Um, Instagram founders didn't think that there should be a way to share somebody else's post on your feed because they wanted your feed to be just the things that you had personally created. And, and while that was important in the beginning for artists and musicians and people to feel like they had creative control of the, of their products, uh, it also turned Instagram into the ultimate personal branding tool. Because when you go to someone's Instagram page, you see just what they have created and you get a pretty good picture of this is what this person wants me to think of them. This is how they see themselves, even if it's aspirational, even if it's curated, this is, this is their, um, their version of, it's, it's almost like their personality resume. It's absolutely fascinating when you wrote um, that they had developed um, a repost button and then they didn't use it for the reasons um, that you said, because that would have actually helped posts go viral. And you write about this, um, the actor Ashton Kutcher, even push for it. <laughs> must uh, They must believe this very strongly. 
Well, it was it was just conventional knowledge back then that if you if you wanted to be successful, you had to grow. And if you wanted to grow, you had to use these growth hacking techniques. So more engagement, more reshares, more notifications. Why don't you send email notifications to people every day, reminding them to log into the app? Why don't you spam people? Like it was all just like the mentality of like the startup ecosystem. If you want the big valuations, if you want the attention, you need to go fast and you need to shock everyone with how fast you're going. And and that's really not how the Instagram founders felt about it. They didn't want to to corrupt that that sense of taste and the the idea of what they wanted to accomplish. And of course, we'll, we can get to this later, but that is the epitome of disagreements that they had with Facebook because Facebook is a growth at all costs company. They do everything, they measure your every move in that app to try to determine if there's anything they could do to get you to look more, to engage more, to click more, to like more. And so when Instagram comes into Facebook and they're talking about, you know, running, running community meetups and meeting with celebrities to train them on the app, Facebook is like, what are you doing? Why are you talking to 20 people or, or a few a handful of famous people when you could be thinking of this the based way where you, do something that helps a hundred thousand people or a hundred million people. So uh, I, I just think it, it was a really unique mentality that these founders had. Mm. And they had quick success on the back of it. Um, so actually you just reminded me of the um, Justin Bieber story, um, speaking of celebrities that, um, that used Instagram. <laughs> he was a very early user, wasn't he? So just tell us a story as to how he changed the, the Instagram community. They needed to have a server just for him. I mean, what happened with Justin Bieber? <laughs> so when you get, when you achieve that cultural cachet, you can get growth in a different way, which is that you can get people who are cool to use your app. And the second Justin Bieber joined, like nobody had asked him to join. He just joined Instagram because he thought it was cool. He posted some picture of LA traffic and the servers crashed. And in fact, the servers would crash every time that he would post because he had such a huge following. Um, suddenly Instagram became full of, of a younger set of people. Uh, at the time, Justin Bieber was obviously of big with the teen and preteen girls. And it was just the beginning of this celebrity mindset. You had, you had Snoop Dogg doing his first ever promoted post on Instagram, but it didn't really look like an ad. He just posted about his, uh, it was almost like a four loco drink. Um, at one point, Justin Bieber got locked out of his account and Instagram was so focused on like keeping it simple and making it easy, but they hadn't really thought about things like customer service. And so Justin Bieber's manager actually called in and said, Hey dude, like we are locked out and uh, they didn't have any authentication process for that. So they just had Justin Bieber call to get back in and say, Hey, it's Justin. They were like, okay, I guess we'll trust you. <laughs> Here's your password. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, um, you mentioned their promoter post. So the founders didn't actually want um, 
people, uh, they don't want advertisers to pay for posts, right? So what happened when uh, the actor Jared Leto went to their office? And they don't want investors either, initially. <laughs> yeah, Jared Leto and, and a few other, I mean, Ashton Kutcher was there as well, considering investing. Justin Bieber tried to invest. They, they really were not interested in having that, any sort of financial relationship with celebrities or top users. They, they wanted people to use it because they wanted to use it, not because they had a financial interest in doing it. And they thought of Instagram in the early days as like a place for this, these curated new experiences, right? Where you would go and, and you could hear directly from, you know, a podcast host in Europe or a reindeer herder in Nor- Norway, or you could just see into that person's life. And they created this suggested user list where they just kind of like put the best surfers and athletes and artists and photographers on a list. And whenever someone would join the app, they'd have this list to follow. Well, the people on that list started to get followers faster than anyone else. And eventually, some of them realized that basically they had an equivalent equivalent audience to if you had like a magazine or a newspaper or even a large blog. So they tried to figure out, could I just pay for access to this audience? Maybe I could get free products. Maybe I could get money. And so they started to do that. And when they did it, Instagram was just horrified. They thought, this is a creative product and they're commercializing it. And that's not what we envision for the future. Of course, when you have an audience, that audience can be monetized And as soon as people learned that that was possible, that became the culture of Instagram, the aspiration for Instagram, that everyone wanted to build followers so that they could make money off them. So you write more than 6 million Insta celebrities have more than a million followers. So how does this um, industry work? Essentially, people have built followings in in categories that make them celebrities for like a, a group, right? So you have people who, I, I follow this like insect breeder in Germany and he was just, that was his thing. He would just post about, he would have like insects on his face and he would just pose with them. And eventually when he got featured on Instagram on their main account, he got a deal with a designer brand to do like a collab on these insects. So like literally anyone could be an influencer. We have this idea of the sun tanned bikini clad person laying on a beach in the sunset uh, or, you know, the, the young person at a restaurant snapping pictures of their food. Influencers can be, can be entrepreneurs. They can be small business owners. They can be, um, makeup artists or, or hairstylists, literally any visual industry. If you're a baker, if you're a chef, if you're, um, if you're doing, if you're a skateboarder, skateboarder, Instagram is huge. Like these are the people that have built up communities on Instagram. And then once you have a community, you can make money off of it because if say you are a 
brand that sells ball bearings for skateboards. Well, it wouldn't really make sense for you to run a TV spot, but it might make sense for you to find somebody who's extremely influential in the skateboard community, get them to use your ball bearings. It's like the endorsement deals that athletes get or actors get in the real world. And this is when Instagram started allowing um, uh, such posts, sponsored posts, but they had to be declared, right? And I think oh, this, yes. this set of influencers, what I found fascinating in your book is that you said um, to be an influencer, <laughs> you worked out <laughs> that 50,000 followers would do it. So more than 200 million of Instagram's users have more than 50,000 followers. So you say that's the level where you can make a living posting on behalf of brands. I found that absolutely fascinating. It's sort of different than what you think of those million followers or getting a big sponsorship deal, isn't it? It is. And I, I think I think it's worth noting that all the real world brands, I say real world, I mean, conventional, like every brand that you have ever heard of has an Instagram because you just have to now. It's just where the economy, where taste is being set. So it, when you think about that number, it's not just, it, it could be the local restaurant that has been really big on Instagram or the ice cream shop. The entrepreneurial nature of it has been so interesting. I, I've talked to young people who say that they have a couple Instagrams besides their personal Instagram, just for an, an attempt at hedging against the economy and uncertainty. They say, I don't know if I'll get into college. I don't know if I'm going to get a job after I graduate. Maybe I should build up my beauty blogger Instagram because maybe if I get enough followers, pe people will pay me for this. And it can kind of like help me pay the rent while I try to get this career started. And a lot of people who have done that have actually ended up with that as their career. And, and many others have failed. And then in order to strive for that, we have had a lot of attempts to appear successful without actually being successful. Again, with the filters training us that Instagram, on Instagram, that's okay. You have people buying followers, buying engagement, trying to portray themselves as, as experts in an area that they're not. So I think that there are a lot of downsides to that engine of the economy as well. Some of these problems where users curate a perfect lifestyle, and there's a lot of issues around that, isn't there, that Instagram faces? Well, I think when people look at Instagram, they see this version of people that they compare themselves to and they say, oh my gosh, my home decor is not as good as that. Or my vacation is not as good as that. My children are not as cute as that. My puppy is not as well behaved as that. And, and you just kind of start judging yourself because every time somebody posts on Instagram, they get essentially a score. They get told, this is how many comments you have. This is how many likes you have. This is how many followers you got. And every time they're trying to be strategic, even just subconsciously strategic about doing the right thing, we are self-conscious by nature as humans. Like we just want to please and we want to be acknowledged. And I think Instagram really, really, hones in on that human instinct 
and it can be very dangerous because if people don't understand the mechanisms for what gets rewarded on Instagram, if people don't understand that followers are not actually equal to popularity or not actually equal to relevance or not actually equal to how much somebody is loved, um, in that in some cases they are purchased or faked. Um, you could even buy comments these days. If people realize that there was there was this class of folks being much more strategic, then maybe they would give themselves a little bit of a break. But in the meantime, we have a lot of anxiety, especially among young people. I like I said earlier, the the connection between Instagram and career uh, for the youth of our world is is getting ever clearer. If you want to start a business, you're probably going to have an Instagram for it. This is so much pressure. I was talking to a psychiatrist who deals with a lot of students at Stanford, one of the top universities in the world. And she hears them worry about whether their Instagrams are cool enough. Because if they don't have an interesting Instagram, they might not get into the best fraternity. If they don't get into the best fraternity, they might not get an interesting career because it's all about networking. And so the way that his, this has weaved itself into our world is, is just so, it's so fascinating, but it's also something that like, if you're a user and you're aware of that, then you can kind of detach yourself from that pressure. Wow. Um, Sarah, I want to move to talking about the Instagram um, story in terms of Facebook and what's happened to the founder. So I'll start at the beginning. So um, they ended up being sold to Facebook for a billion dollars. Um, so actually, before we do that, how does Instagram itself generate revenue? Because you're right, it's actually become a massive gen- revenue generator for Facebook. It makes money the same way, in part because of Facebook, the same way Facebook makes money, which is through sponsored posts. So an advertiser can create create a post on Instagram that then appears as if it's one of the normal posts in the feed, but it's, it's actually an ad. It just blends in very well. And... Mm. Um, but before they were sold to Facebook, <laughs> when they were still against kind of ads and investors. They had no they were... revenue to speak of. They, okay. were, <laughs> they had 13 employees, 25 million users, and zero revenue. 18 months old. Um, Twitter, though, was also interested in buying them. So just tell the story as to how this company with, uh, as we just said, 13 employees, no revenue. <laughs> Oops, 25 million users, 18 months old, uh, a billion dollars. <laughs> that was that price had never been made for a mobile app ever before. Uh, so it was it was quite quite exciting for them, but also a little bittersweet because they were hoping that they could go it alone. And and Jack Dorsey, I mentioned earlier, had this really close relationship with Instagram because he was an early investor and Jack Dorsey was also high up at Twitter. The co-founder of Twitter, still very influential, kept trying to convince Twitter to buy Instagram. And three times it didn't work. The first time it was because his co-founder said no. The second time it was because the new CEO said no. And the third time it was because Kevin Systrom said no. He didn't want to sell. He he wanted to... he wanted to raise money and grow Instagram in, into being bigger. And the second he raised his round, it was about 
uh, it was a round that valued Instagram at about $500 million, which was still incredible at the time. He got a call from Zuckerberg saying, you know, you can join us or you can compete with us. <laughs> and Kevin named his price $2 billion. Zuckerberg said, absolutely not. But I'll give you 1% of Facebook, $1 billion. And they made it happen over a whirlwind Easter weekend full of barbecuing in the backyard of the Zuckerberg's Palo Alto home. Um, no bankers were involved. It was really just Zuckerberg saying, this is what I want to do and making it happen. It was the first time that he had acquired an app to remain independent within Facebook. And he thought that that was that was something that was going to get Kevin Sistrom to say yes. He understood that Instagram had a different cachet than Facebook. Facebook at the time was failing at mobile phone development. It, their app was very cluttered and confusing. They couldn't figure out how to make money on it just yet. And Instagram was clearly comfortable in mobile. Built they didn't even really have a web app, and and so he knew that they needed that DNA. But he also knew that like if Facebook put its stamp on Instagram right away, they could kill it. The acquisition took a few months to be approved by regulators, something that is currently a matter of a lot of debate because people don't think it should have happened. Uh, Instagram was already the most popular photo sharing app and Facebook was already the most popular social network. So should they have been allowed to combine? As you say, that's still ongoing, isn't it? Um, I also I particularly found it to be a fascinating tale because you write um, that Mark Zuckerberg turned down a billion dollars from Yahoo in 2006 and decided not to sell Facebook when that was around Instagram's age. Then a couple of years after Instagram was sold to Facebook in 2014, Mark Zuckerberg bought WhatsApp for $20 billion, and its founder got a seat on Facebook's board. So did Kevin Systrom, co-founder of Instagram, sell too soon? That's the question that eats at him. Um, but I, I, think that, I think that really WhatsApp's acquisition could not have happened without the Instagram acquisition. Kevin Systrom personally met with Jan Koum, the CEO of WhatsApp, and told him that the the gig at Facebook was all right, that things were going okay. And that was enough to convince Jan that, okay, maybe it's worth taking this money. And Zuckerberg was also simultaneously getting more confident about the potential for this kind of acquisition to work. So yeah, he probably told sold too soon, but, but if he hadn't sold then, Instagram was very small and growing so fast. And if he hadn't sold then, he would have had to hire maybe 80 people right away <laughs> and build out infrastructure, figure out what to do about content moderation because at the time they just had employees answering each and every problem. It was just really stressful for them. They were having a lot of sleepless nights. They were working weekends and they almost saw the Facebook acquisition as a way to relax. Not too much, but enough that they could have somebody else deal with the infrastructure, somebody else deal with the legal, somebody else deal with the politics. And they could just focus on what they liked, which is product and engineering. 
Yeah, I love how you write, and you mentioned it earlier that every time Justin Bieber posted, he would crash the server. There would be some, you know, message alert, and the founders would have to get out of bed and try and sort it. It's、yes. quite a lot to take on.、Um, but you alluded to it earlier.、Um, it wasn't、um, all smooth sailing, was it, for Instagram to operate as an independent company within Facebook? Well, right when Instagram joins Facebook. Facebook's growth team says, "We would love to help. Welcome to the family. However, first, we need to run a study to make sure that Instagram's growth is not going to is not the reason that Facebook photo sharing will decline." So right away, they said they were willing to kill Instagram if it was going to be something that would kill Facebook, and that was a foreshadowing. Because although Instagram had a, a somewhat harmonious first couple years getting situated, once once they got to the point where they were growing rapidly, after they introduced Instagram Stories, they started to accelerate in growth. It was clear that they were on the path to one billion users. Mark Zuckerberg started to get worried that. Facebook was sending way too many people to go use Instagram, and he started to worry that Instagram's popularity would cannibalize Facebook. And the main argument against that is, dude, you you own Instagram. <laughs> like, is that isn't that like if users want to go there, shouldn't they go there?、Um, but he thought that that human behavior was valuable. That if Facebook was sending people to Instagram, and maybe that was responsible for Instagram's great growth. Maybe now Instagram should be sending people back to Facebook. So we cut off a lot of their resources. He made Instagram send folks to Facebook. He relied more heavily on Instagram to produce revenue for Facebook, and it was. It was just really frustrating for the Instagram founders because. They thought that if they helped Facebook crush the competition, if they grew fast, maybe they would be rewarded with even more independence and more resources. But the opposite happened. And is that why the founders left Facebook in 2018? Yes. Yes, they were frustrated that they felt like they were no longer CEO and and co-founder. They felt like they were simply. Product managers in Mark Zuckerberg's world, and I think what、um, was fascinating about、um, the way you told the story was obviously the dynamics.、Um, so I hope people pick up the book and、uh, and read it because we're not going to capture all of it.、Um, but it'd just be great to get、um, an anecdote from you. You write about a lot of these different anecdotes、um, in the book of. Where they put Instagram, the team—they were kind of in their little office, and you know, didn't have their own kind of ethos. So just tell us a story around it to give, I think, a sense of it. Oh yeah, so so one of the things I'll talk about the year that the founders left. Instagram was launching IGTV right around the same time that Facebook was dealing with the blowback from Cambridge Analytica, and. They were having this big blowout event with lots of Instagramable foods: avocado toast, matcha lattes, acai bowls. 
um, they had a bunch of celebrities from the app coming to launch the, the TV situation. Um, they, they were having a lot of trouble with the event, but it eventually happened. It, it launched, it was fine. Um, and then Zuckerberg calls. Uh, Chris Cox, who calls Kevin Systrom and says, Mark's inc incredibly mad. Mark Zuckerberg is mad because the logo you have used for Instagram TV is very similar to the Facebook Messenger logo. So he didn't get any like congratulations. He didn't get any acknowledgement. He just was told that his logo was competing with Facebook. And it was just a lot of little things like that that really frustrated them. Um, Zuckerberg was hesitant to let Instagram announce that it had reached a billion users. To this day, we still don't know how many users Instagram has had beyond that because they haven't announced more users since 2018. Uh, Kevin Systrom also asked for more people to handle some of the downsides of Instagram, some of the dark corners of the app that could result in, in illegal activity or election interference or any of those things. And Zuckerberg said, you have to work on that within Facebook. You can't have your own resources to tackle, to tackle those problems. So I think, I think it was just a very frustrating time uh, for them. Wow. Um, it's always interesting and fascinating to me how personalities play such a big part. Um, and all of this, and I think you capture all of that really well. A final question to you is, um, you cover the sector, obviously, you know all the players, you know um, a lot of these challengers. Um, Facebook um, built videos because they had competition, uh, the disappearing video site, um, Snapchat. So how would you assess Instagram's future? <laughs> um, you know, what, what do you think they're going to be um, remain the ubiquitous app what you know now that the founders are gone um you know what do you what do you think is going to happen to instagram instagram is becoming more and more like facebook every day they have more notifications more recommendation algorithms for you um people that they are suggesting that you follow instead of instagram being a place where you get introduced to things you haven't already seen it's a more facebookian mentality of introducing you to more of the stuff you they know that you like the personalization that has kept us glued to Facebook all these years and and I think that the other big thing that they're working on is shopping they have become really really interested and really more comfortable with the commercial aspect of the app that the founders were not okay with in the beginning and so Instagram shop Instagram checkout they're letting People who are influencers make their own money off the app. Maybe eventually Facebook takes a cut of that e-commerce. So, so that's a big evolution. We also see Instagram as the number one tool Facebook has to crush uprising competitors like TikTok. And they have introduced Reels to try to capture a TikTok-sized audience on Instagram. I don't think that that's necessarily going to work. I think that Instagram is really floating away from the simplicity and ease of use that made it popular in the first place. And if you go to Instagram today, 
you get, you have your feed posts, you have the stories posts, you have highlights, you have reels, you have direct, you have shop, you have explore. It's too complicated. I think it's too complicated. And I think, I think that's a very Facebook way of building. Facebook has groups and events and uh, marketplace and all these things. And I think that if you are trying to maintain this like tone and simplicity around the app, uh, it's just looking a lot more like Facebook. Hmm. It sounds like you are a little bit gloomy about its future, I suppose. <laughs> I, I mean, <laughs> so, okay, I'll, I'll, say, I'll say that, but I'll also say that Instagram has become this engine of our society. I don't think that's going anywhere. It is the place where we measure relevance in society and where we we show other people how we see ourselves it's our it's our place for our our identity which is extremely powerful and so i i would say it's it's worth thinking about that power and what happens to that power now that facebook's in control of it more closely than ever so i would say that instagram is still growing in in its influence tremendously i don't think it's fading i just think it's shifting absolutely fascinating thank you very much i'm sarah fryer um i urge everyone to pick up her new book no filter the inside story of how instagram transformed business celebrity and our culture um for just a riveting tale about how an app became part of our everyday lives Thank you all for listening, for tuning in. For more podcasts, please go to intelligencesquare.com. I'm Linda Yu. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.